would turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 9. It's a privilege to be back in the saddle today and picking back up in our study of the book of Acts. I wanted to begin with a story um, I heard about Dr. Derek Thomas. Uh, Derek Thomas is currently serving as the senior pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. He was also, as I've said many times, my favorite professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. And he tells a story that happened shortly after his conversion. Dr. Thomas came to faith in Christ near the end of his freshman year of college. This was somewhere December of 1971, so some 50 years ago. He's majoring in mathematics, but majoring in applied mathematics. I don't know the difference in mathematics and applied mathematics, but that was his major. And uh, he comes to school, an unbeliever, and sometime during his first semester, he is converted. And during this time, he had a professor named Professor Walters. And Professor Walters was unique. He stood out. He was a bit of an anomaly among the faculty because he was a Christian. And not just any Christian, he was an evangelical Christian. So he actually believed in the miracles that we're told of in the Bible. He believed that the Bible is God's word and the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus. This made him a bit of an anomaly. And he had a reputation for being a Christian. Because it wasn't some private thing. He would openly speak of his faith in the classroom. And he would exhort his students to it. Dr. Thomas says that his first day back in the classroom after his conversion, he's in Professor Walter's class and he's lecturing on fluid dynamics and again... You could threaten me with anything, and I couldn't tell you what fluid dynamics is, but that's what Professor Walters is lecturing on. And he stops mid-lecture, and he looks at Derek Thomas and points to him and says, Thomas, you've been converted. Tell us about it. You can guess his reaction. He was embarrassed. His face turned red. He began to speak nervously. He's stammering and stumbling over his words. He just wanted to disappear. He was well aware that he and Professor Walters were the only Christians in the room. And everyone else is looking at him like a Martian has descended from the sky and landed in their classroom. This is unique. This is odd. We've, we don't see many of you around here. And so there was... A little curiosity. One of their classmates has adopted the faith of their kooky professor. Dr. Thomas knew that that interest and curiosity could quickly fade. And it could turn to hostility if the truth claims of Christianity were pressed upon them. He understood that. And so he's... Nervous, he was hesitant, he was embarrassed. Well, after that class ended, Derek Thomas was 
the last one sitting in his chair. Everyone else filed out of the classroom, and Derek gets up to walk out, and Professor Walter stopped him and pulled him aside, and he said something that 50 years later Derek Thomas remembers. Professor Walters looked at him and said, Thomas, I believe in nailing your colors to the mast from the very beginning. I'll remind you, a mast is the main pole or beam on a ship. Think of a sailboat. There's going to be one beam or pole, whatever you call it, that goes straight up in the air and it's taller than everything else on the ship. It might be where the crow's nest is located, where a sailor could climb up and stand and look out. Or where a flag would fly, it is the most visible point of the ship. And you could be a long distance off and look at the ship and you could see the flag flying at the very top and you would know who that ship belonged to. And Professor Walters is saying, when it comes to my faith, I don't believe in going incognito or flying under the radar. I'm not going to maintain a personal but private faith. I don't want there to be any confusion as to whom it is I serve. Nail your colors to the mast and do so from the beginning. You know who else believed that? Saul of Tarsus. You remember where we are in the book of Acts. This chapter, uh, chapter 9, begins with these words. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's who we're talking about. That's verse 1 of this chapter. But today we see Saul nailing his colors to the mast. Because he'd met the risen Lord on the Damascus road. He'd met the king. He may have been sent by the high priest in Jerusalem to Damascus, but he'd met the real high priest on the road. And that great high priest had given him another mission. This violent, wicked man had been shown grace. His heart had been changed and he was set on a new path. And we are told that immediately... He is proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues and saying that he is the Son of God. He's telling you his colors from the very beginning. So what we're going to do today is really just two things. We're going to see how Saul nails his colors to the mast, and then, two, we're going to see the reaction that he elicits from the crowd. So let's pray and then read our text. Father God, we plead for your working this morning. As we open your word, and as I preach it, I pray that your spirit would work in the hearts of your people. That you would draw us closer to yourself. That we would have a confidence in who you are, and who your son is, and what he has done on our behalf. Would we see that more clearly during this time, we ask in his name. Amen. Acts 9, beginning in 19b. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately 
he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, It multiplied. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. When Derek Thomas tells his story about his professor asking him mid-lecture to give a report on his conversion, he didn't tell us what he actually said. He said that he was nervous and embarrassed and he kind of wanted to disappear, but we don't know the words that he said. Well, what about Saul? What's he talking about post-conversion? Well, Luke tells us. In, in verse 20, we read, Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Those are strong words from Paul. We know Similar words got Peter and John arrested and beaten back in Acts 5. And here Paul is coming out of the gate swinging. Saying, I just met the Lord on the road. He is the Son of God. And He has spared a hateful, rebellious murderer like myself. Later on, as Saul grew in the knowledge of the Lord, this is verse 22, we're told that he's contending with the Jews in Damascus, proving to them that Jesus was the Christ. He's drawing on all his previous education and his training as a Pharisee. All the dots are starting to connect. All the Old Testament knowledge is being used. And he's saying, look, brothers, everything the Lord God promised in the books of Moses and in the prophets, everything, all of those promises about the anointed one, the Messiah, they are all fulfilled in Christ. They're all signs and breadcrumbs that lead to him. Let me show you how this Jesus of Nazareth is all over the pages of our Torah. 
Notice he's not sitting silently and nervously in the synagogues wondering how he's going to break the news to them. He's speaking with them. We're told that he confounded them, meaning he, he confused them and bewildered them. He stirred them up, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Later on, we see when he finally reaches Jerusalem, Barnabas hears him preach boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas is convinced that this is indeed a changed man. This is not the same man who terrorized the church, but one who has been born again. Saul goes out from the believers in Jerusalem and he takes up Stephen's mantle. And he is disputing against the Greek-speaking Jews, the, the Hellenists. This, this would have been Saul's party. These were his people. This was his home. And he goes back to the synagogue that was once his home. And he's now a changed man. Now debating and challenging his former brothers to recognize Jesus as the Son of God and only Savior of sinners. He's nailing his colors to the mast. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He's speaking about his conversion. He's speaking about the Lord. And we see in this text he's doing so from the beginning. Now, if you remember from Galatians 1, there is a period in time where Saul immediately, he says, immediately after my conversion, I went to Arabia and spent three years there and then came back to Damascus. There's debate as to where exactly that takes place. Some people, and I tend, I tend to agree, think that that happens between verses 22 and 23 here. Luke begins with, when many days had passed. Okay, is that the three-year period he goes to Arabia? We aren't exactly sure. We also know that when he leaves Jerusalem at, at the end of this text, at the end of verse 29, he leaves and goes to Tarsus, and he's going to spend... Ten years there before we see him again in Acts 11. Ten years in Tarsus before Barnabas is going to go to him and say, hey, let's go to Antioch. So there's a lot of training and study and growing that is going to take place. And yet he is still speaking about Jesus. I'm obviously no obstetrician or pediatrician. But I do believe that there is cause to worry if an infant, especially a newborn, does not cry. I know that some babies will cry more than others. But all babies cry. They cry at birth, they cry when they're cold, they cry when they're hungry, they cry when their diaper is wet or dirty. They may cry for any number of reasons. But when they don't, when they're silent, I think that's generally cause to worry. It's cause to investigate what's going on. Why isn't this baby crying? Do they need help getting their lungs going? Do we stimulate their lungs? Do they need oxygen? Does this baby have, have some type of syndrome or disability that might cause them not to cry. Docs 
investigate and ask these questions because babies cry. Brothers and sisters, please apply that to the Christian life. Every believer is at a point in time born again and is a baby Christian. And just like newborn infants verbalize by crying, newborn Christians verbalize and demonstrate life and health by talking about their Lord. And if this does not happen, if it has never happened, if there's no verbalization, then there's cause to do some investigation. Why the silence? Is this person intimidated? Are they in a context where they're under pressure? Do they live with someone who might be upset if they found out they were converted? Is this person embarrassed like Dr. Thomas was, not wanting to be seen or stick out because some fear of man still exists? Wanting to be accepted and loved by the world and praised by the world and not rejected by the world? Do some of those feelings still linger in the heart? Has the person actually been converted? Was there a false profession made? All questions to ask. And listen, none of, this is not exclusive to new believers. All of us are going to face circumstances where we are tempted to be silent about our beliefs. And to keep our personal face private. Our personal faith private. You may be tempted to do so for countless reasons. But it's not healthy. When we look at the scriptures, you know, it's clear that we are not supposed to keep our faith hidden. The easiest and most familiar example comes from the mouth of our Lord in Matthew 5. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now that sounds a lot like nailing your colors to the mast, doesn't it? A lamp on a stand. A city on a hill that cannot be hidden. But it's not just there. It is, it's all over the Psalms. I just picked out two. Psalm 74, we will tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. Or Psalm 145, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. You can go to the New Testament letters and read Jude saying, Beloved, I'm appealing for you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Or Peter, the same man who denied his Lord three times, say, always be, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. Now we can read that and you can think, well, what if that is not me? What if I don't feel that way? 
I believe my faith is real, but there are certain circumstances where I'm tempted to hide it under a basket. There are times when I'm tempted to keep silent and be evasive and not contend for the faith and just not make a fuss, not stir things up, don't dispute. What about those times? When I don't feel like the psalmist felt and I don't speak like the psalmist spoke. What about those times when I care more about what the unbelieving world thinks than what the creator of the world thinks? There's only one place we can go. Only one place we can go. It's, it, my job here is easy. There is only one hope, one answer where we go in those times, and it's to the cross of Christ. I'll remind you that the same one who we see speaking boldly here in this passage, that same person, that same man will write to the church at Corinth and say, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So we come to the cross. You are not going to speak boldly and have victory here by trying harder. You aren't going to prove faithful by resolving here and now that I'm going to do better and like Saul, I'm going to go home or I'm going to go to the office and I'm going to nail my colors to the mast and I'm not going to be afraid and I'm going to be courageous from now on. That's not where lasting strength and change comes from. That shouldn't be our motivation. We go to the cross. And at the cross we see His great love for us. That He took our place. He died in our place. He was our substitute. And He died so that we do not have to. We go to the cross and we see our sin. Our sin of wanting to hide our faith and embarrassment and fear of man and wanting to be accepted and loved by the world. Wanting their approval, denying our Lord like Peter did. We see all those sins. And we see them placed on Jesus on the cross. And we see them paid for. And we see justice satisfied. And we see that we are accepted because of Him. So we run to Him. We run to the cross. We see what He has done. We confess our sins and our fears and our failures to Him, and we plead for His Holy Spirit. That His Spirit would fill us and strengthen us, and through His power, we would say, Jesus is Lord. I don't want you to go home and just decide you're going to try harder this week to be more like Saul in the synagogues. I want you to go to Jesus and meditate on the truths of the gospel and plead for the outpouring of His Spirit. This is Saul nailing his colors to the mast. We then see the reaction that doing so elicits. Remember Dr. Thomas, he was shy about speaking openly in his class about his faith. Probably stemmed from 
a perception of how his unbelieving classmates would react. Like I said, the first thing is kind of curiosity, like, oh, this is strange. Here's a, here is a Martian. You don't see many of these around this university, and there might be a curious interest. But he knew that if he spoke openly about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and that he is the only way to the Father, and that every knee must bow to him, not only as Savior, but also as Lord. If he presses those on his peers, it's going to trigger hostility. We see that same pattern here in Acts 9. The crowd in Damascus, they're, they're confused. We're told that they're amazed, or a better word might be confused. They're puzzled. And you can hear that in their question. In verse 21, isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem on the same people whose name he is now spouting? And didn't he come to Damascus to round all of these people up and to take them back to Jerusalem? And, and now he's the one professing Christ? Do we have the same guy? Is, is there another Saul of Tarsus we need to be aware of? They're confused. And as he presses the truths of the gospel upon them, this confusion metastasizes and becomes open hostility. It becomes personal. They are offended. They are confounded. This man has gone from preaching to meddling. They've had enough and decide to kill him. And so they set up a 24-hour watch on the gate. You are not going to get out of the city. We're putting guards at every gate, night and day. You are trapped inside, and if you try to get out, we will catch you and kill you. But in God's providence, their plot became known to Saul. And the believers take him to a place in the wall. It was probably one of their homes. Homes were built into the walls, and so probably one of the believers' homes, and he is lowered from a window in a basket. This great powerful man who came to Damascus with the authority and weight of the chief priest behind him is escaping at night in a basket. You know, the reaction in Jerusalem is no different. He's preaching boldly and walking in the same steps that Stephen walked. It's probably the same group of people that killed Stephen, and now they're seeking to kill Saul. And in God's providence, again, he is rescued by the church and sent off to Caesarea and then Tarsus. You know, this is the beginning of many escapes for Paul. He'll escape many times. He won't always get away, though. Sometimes he'll get caught and beaten. He'll be imprisoned. We know one time he is stoned. He is going to suffer much for the sake of Jesus' name. It's a promise that the Lord made back in verse 16. I would remind you this morning that we should never be surprised that we suffer. And we should never be surprised that an unbelieving world responds to the news of Jesus with hostility. 
Our Lord says in John 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is what Saul is dealing with. It's what he's seeing. He meets hostility from the unbelieving Jews in Damascus and Jerusalem. But there's another rejection here that I have to imagine would be the most painful. The most painful for him. He comes to the church in Jerusalem. He attempts to join them. But the doors are closed because they're afraid of him. They didn't believe he was truly converted. Maybe he's playing some role of like a Trojan horse and he's going to pretend to be one of them and get inside and then get a list of everyone's name and address and then arrest all of them. And you have a hard time blaming them. He'd been their enemy. He'd ravaged the church. He had drugged men and women from their homes and locked them in prison. How could God save someone like that? That's what most everyone was thinking. Praise God for Christians like Barnabas. We met Barnabas back in Acts 4. You remember he sold the piece of land and gave the proceeds to the church. Ananias and Sapphira see him do that. Oh, we want to be like Barnabas. We want people to like us like Barnabas. We know what happens there. We see Barnabas again and he seeks Saul out. When no one else would... At much risk to himself. Remember Saul's reputation. Remember what he has done in Jerusalem. And Barnabas seeks him out. And goes to him and listens to him. And he hears the story of what happened on the Damascus road. And Barnabas takes Saul by the hand. And literally brings him into the fold. Despite... Saul's horrific past sins. Barnabas is able to put those aside and extend forgiveness just as he himself had been forgiven his sins by God. Oh, that Christ would raise up more Barnabases within his church. Men and women who will pursue the outsider the ones who are difficult to love, the ones whose sin may be public and notorious, would God raise up more Barnabases to go to them and listen to them and take them by the hand and lead them into the fold? We know there's risk in living this way. There's risk in being deceived or taking, being taken advantage of But just imagine how glorious it would have been for the church in Jerusalem when the work of the Holy Spirit was confirmed in Saul's heart. You know, if we want to follow the lead of Barnabas, we need to be those 
who expect the unexpected from God. That there is not one person who is beyond the reach of the gospel. I think it's safe to guess that most of us, myself included, our expectations of God are too low. Our expectations of what He can do and will do are far too low. Maybe this might explain our hesitation to speak. Our hesitation to nail the colors to the mast because we really aren't expecting much from our God. Well, the conversion of Saul is proof that our God can convert anyone. If we believe this, if we expect the unexpected from our God, it will, it will change how we live. It will change our churches. Well, finally, Luke gives us a closing summary statement. We aren't going to see Saul again for a couple more chapters, and so Luke ties a bow on this story. Here is the conversion of Saul. This is your bow. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Samaria, well, Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It's easy to understand why the church has peace, right? Their biggest threat, their biggest persecutor is now their biggest advocate. God gives them a period of peace where the church is built up and strengthened. And notice here, it's built up, it's strengthened. We're told that the church multiplied. How did that happen? That's That's something we all want. Don't we? We want the church to grow. We want people to be freed from bondage to their sin. We want people to receive forgiveness. We want relationships and lives to be healed. We want reconciliation to happen within families. We long for more and more households in our community to be transformed by the grace of God. How does this happen? Do we need an ad campaign? Do we need to add upward basketball or some other sports to fill up time in the gym? No, look. Luke tells us they were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That's how churches grow. Churches don't just grow because the times are easy or the times are hard. They don't just grow in times of peace or in times of persecution. The church grows when its people are walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Would you join me in praying that our God would work these within us? That He would give us a holy reverence and awe concerning Himself. That He would be put first in our hearts and lives. That we would care most about pleasing Him and not offending Him. And that we would do so day in and day out in the major life events and in the normal grind. Would we revere Him regardless of worldly consequences we might face? And would you pray 
that he would pour out his spirit. In his spirit we are born again. In his spirit we're able to say Jesus is the Christ. In his spirit is found an endless source of supernatural comfort and encouragement. It's interesting the the word here, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that word comfort is the same word that is used to describe Barnabas. Barnabas means the son of encouragement. It's a picture here of what the Holy Spirit does. And I know there are lots of things that we pray for routinely, lots of wonderful things. May I suggest that we add, that you add two petitions to your prayer list. Number one, Lord, help me to walk daily in a holy fear of you. Would I be in awe of you? And number two, Lord, pour out your spirit upon me. Send the helper that Christ promised. Send the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the comforter, that we would be encouraged and strengthened to do the good works you have saved us to. Brothers and sisters, if we pray those two things from the heart, promptly and sincerely, expect the unexpected. Let's pray together. Father God, for the example of Paul, we are grateful. He'll go on to write to Timothy, calling himself the chief of sinners. And that in him and his conversion, we have an example of the perfect patience of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that that same confidence would be, would be wrought in our hearts. Father, would we be those who have a holy reverence and awe and adoration for who you are and what you have done. And Father, we ask that you would pour out your spirit. Pour out your spirit upon us. Pour out your spirit upon this church. Father, pour out your spirit in this city. I ask that your spirit of comfort and encouragement would be with those who are hurting, with those who have experienced loss and grief, that they would know you are near, they would be comforted simply by your presence. Father, we ask for all these things so that you might be glorified and more might come to know your Son and find true joy and purpose in serving him. We ask this in his name. Amen.